welcome to How to Deal When the Shit Gets Real podcast. I'm Rietta. And I'm Connie. And today we are here with Elizabeth Houlihan. Elizabeth, how do you deal when shit gets real? Or just tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I am Elizabeth. I am mom of two, Patrick and Jack, and we are expecting our third this fall. My husband and I live on Long Island, New York. I'm a stay-at-home mom slash content creator on Instagram. I like it. She's an awesome content creator on Instagram, always having these like really funny reels and all the fun things. So do you know the uh, sex of the baby yet or are you keeping it a surprise? We do not know. We found out with our first, but then we decided not to find out with our second. And we both loved that experience so much that I'll never go back. So we're enjoying the surprise and enjoying torturing people along the way. (laughs) Darn it. And I thought you were going to come on here and be like, yeah, it's a, I know everyone wants me to, I, I've even had people question that I am like keeping it a secret, even though we know, and I'm like, I'm not that good. Oh, (laughs) I would cave for sure. It's fun though. It's worth it. The experience is very cool. No, I, I agree. It's so much fun. We, we never found out, obviously we only have the one and we never found out either. And it was, my husband was deployed. All the guys on ship had a pool going, like they had a great old time with it. (laughs) My family does a pool and they, they, we do the pool on the weight because I have big babies and we do (laughs) the pool on the gender. And that's really all anybody cares about is the gender and the uh, are you hoping for, what do you think? Do you think boy, girl, do you have any thoughts on it? Cause Rietta had dreams. I did. I, I did have a dream. You did. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you have to tell me what the dream was. Well, I dreamed that I had a blue eyed baby boy and sure enough, I oh, had a blue eyed right. boy. Tell me that. I think it's another boy, but I don't know if I think that just because I've had two boys was sure when the minute I found out I was pregnant with Patrick, I was sure it was a baby boy. And we did find out with him and he was a boy. With Jack, because we did not find out, I had a very different pregnancy. And so most of the way through, I thought it's so different. It must be a girl. And then it was a boy. <laughs> and he was a boy. So I'm, I'm 50, I'm, you know, you're like, who knows? <laughs> my odds are not good. I think it's probably a boy, but I don't know. If, again, I think that just because, but my pregnancy is somewhere between Patrick and Jack's. They were very different. And this one's got a little bit of both. What does Patrick think? Does he have, a, does he have an opinion? The baby is in his belly. When you ask him where the baby <laughs> is, he points to his belly. So I'm not sure he's getting it. <laughs> Dang, I was hoping maybe he was like at that stage where you could be like, what do you think? Is it a boy or a girl? And he would pick one, but like not so much. Yeah, he's still, he just turned three. And I think he's just grasping the concept is still a little loose for him. He's like, baby. And he's like, yeah, baby. And he points to his belly and you're like, he's got the right idea. He knows where it comes from. Just not that it doesn't come from him. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've confused him that the belly is called a baby. But uh, well, he'll figure that out soon enough. <laughs> so since we're talking about mom life and your influencer life, how do you find a balance between being a mom and being an influencer? I started creating content to create content as a mom. For me, it's just genuinely sharing what's going on in my life, sharing what's happening today. 
at times that can feel difficult because my kids are screaming or they want to be held and they have selfish needs all day long. And so particularly at their age, you can't be like, mommy needs five minutes for it to be quiet. That's it's not, not happening. happening. <laughs> yeah. um, but the good news for me is that my content is sort of within a motherhood umbrella. Today is pure chaos and I'm losing my mind and I want to pull my hair out. In other days, it's, you know, here's this hack or here's this way that I do this thing or here's how I'm getting through today or this week. Here's what helps me. Um, and so for me, it's definitely about finding the pockets of my time and getting better about how I use my time for sure. That's been a learning curve, like any other job or any other thing you do, you start to get better at it the more you do it. So what would be like your one tip on like how you did like get better at scheduling your time and stuff like that? So I just finished this 30 day reels challenge, which was way more work than I, when I started it, I was like 30 reels in 30 days was the challenge I gave myself. And I was like, so, I mean, it's 30 days, 30 pieces of content. It's not that big of a deal. And then I was in it and I was like, this is a lot of work. But part of that was challenging myself, but I, I didn't feel like I was maximizing my time when I was creating content. And so I got a lot better about I'll do, uh, I do a lot of fashion content as well. And so if I'm sharing some outfit try-ons on stories, then I'm also shooting photos before I change. And then I'm also making a reel at the same time. So Mm -hmm. finding ways to use one series of content in multiple ways has definitely been helpful. The other thing is I have to start as soon as I wake up in the morning. My kids are really chill the first hour, hour and a half in the morning. If I don't use that chill time. It's not going to happen. Then I lose a lot of my day. Yeah. Well, good thing you've got sleepy kids then in the morning because that helps. We'll see how number three goes for me. But my two now, they like to be chill. They'll drink a little, they'll drink their milk in the morning and they'll be cool to be chill. And I can get that first hour in the morning, I can get a good chunk done. So yeah, that's, that's helpful for me. Hey, that's an important hour, man. People underestimate how much an hour actually is when you're a parent. I mean, even sometimes 30 minutes being like, I've got 30 minutes. What can I do with that is for sure. Yeah. I mean, pockets of time is five, 10, 30 minute increments for sure. Did it take you a lot more time to do all those rules in 30 days? I've been wondering that since you started the challenge, like were you putting in a lot more effort or because like you said, you were prioritizing, it really wasn't that much different. It was a lot. I was batching content. So I would make, when I would have time, particularly on the weekend, I would try to do three or four videos at a time. Some of them take me an intense amount of time. The one video I did 20 outfit changes in 21 seconds. Oh, damn. And it took me two hours just to shoot it. And then I still had to like do some edits and that did not include taking any photos for any of those 20 outfits, which is also insane that I did all that without even taking photos, but I just didn't have time. Other ones will take me, you know, 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. So they're not as bad. So on the weekend I can say, I'm going to do three or four and change my clothes, but creating content at that pace 
I was running out of best content fast. So I really needed to save those ones I could pour it on the weekend for days I knew I couldn't create one. And so if I had time, I was still creating it the day I was loading it, which is not time effective. But sometimes it was just, again, like the nature of the stage of life I'm in. But I would say in a week, anywhere from seven to 10 hours worth of content creation. That's a lot. It was a lot. For a full-time mom with two toddlers, this is really oh, yeah. like a part-time. And that's just in creating content, just in creating the video content. It was a lot for myself and my schedule. People and now you're throwing in a third baby. <laughs> yeah. And you're, and you're pregnant, you know, pregnant exhaustion is real. So, you know, I don't know how you do it, <laughs> but it's fun. And I love to do it like that fashion reel. I made that took me probably a total of three hours. I had a lot of fun with it. It it's the creativity that I definitely get the most out of. So I am the most motivated for it. You can't do as many of those, of course. Yeah. Well, note to self, if I ever need to make reels, I know who to hit up. Well, and isn't it kind of sad that it's like it takes two hours and it's like, what, 15 seconds or 18 seconds? It's like kind of makes you cry on the inside. (laughs) I know. Well, I watched one. I watched one I was obsessed with. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's really good at video. And I was like, I want to make this. And she's like, that had to take so long. So we went scouring to find, because this is like what I get my kicks out of now to see if there was a tutorial. And the girl who did it actually in the comments said it took her over eight hours and it's like a 14 second video. Oh Oh my my goodness. Over eight hours. Never mind. I don't like it that much. I don't have Uh, the patience. There are a couple tutorials on it, but it's, some of them are just, it's heavy editing. And so it's a lot of reshooting and redoing it so that it lines up perfect. It hits the music perfect. It's a lot. Yeah, no. But I do find them super entertaining and I love them and I get a lot of enjoyment out of them. So so maybe one day you'll get to it. You have the time. I have the eight hours. I was going to say, I think, I think I need to be moving myself into like a full-time role here before I'm committed to that. And like, you need help for something that long and like to edit it just perfectly. It's like, yeah, you're going to need help with that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, a lot of people who do it on that level, they have people, right. They're using professional cameras, not their iPhone and a tripod. Like I am there shooting this professionally with somebody who's helping them edit. And I am not, I'm doing it during nap time. (laughs) I love it. And that's a real reel for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Post that as a reel guys. I'm doing this during nap time. I want you to all realize how long this one 15 second reel is going to take. And then that whole, just that whole saying would just take up the whole amount of the reel. Well, and (laughs) And then you would be done. And then when my husband's like, the laundry is piling up, the dishes in the sink are piling up and there's no dinner. And I'm like, but I made this really cool reel today. I'm sure he's like, that's great. 
Like awesome. Super excited about that. But probably the one, the one that has done the best for me so far in terms of um, reach and engagement actually took me the least amount of time. It took me about 14 seconds to make. So there you go. Yeah. I was talking about how hot it is outside. Like, Hey, and they're like, love it. 135,000 views or something like that. Love it. (laughs) But it's hot outside. Hey, I had, apparently that day it resonated with a lot of other hot people. I think this summer the humidity is what's getting everybody. I, do you has. guys get humidity out there? So Connie's in Illinois and I am in yes. Hawaii, of course. But yes, we both, it, it does in both places. It's very humid yeah. here. It's very humid in Illinois. So your first son, Patrick, was born with a cleft. So we just kind of wanted to know, like, our, I guess the first question to be was, what was your and your husband's initial reaction to your son being born with this cleft? So we found out at a 20-week anatomy scan that he would be born with a cleft. And actually what they told us is, we think we see what indicates a cleft lip and palate, but we need you to go to a secondary ultrasound. It was about seven o'clock at night. It was after, you know, my husband came home from work. My husband looked at the doctor and he was like, what is that? And I knew what it was, but I had a lot of misconceptions that I think a lot of people have. I thought it was something that only happened in the developing world. So I was like, how would my baby have that? Like you see posters about that with kids in the developing world. So in my head, that's who that affects. And we were just shocked. They said, you know, here's how we see it and why we see it, but it needs to be confirmed with a more advanced sonogram than we have in our office. So they sent us the next day for a secondary scan and they confirmed it there. They put us in 2D and 3D so we could see the lip. Although Patrick hid his lip for most of his sonograms. And then (laughs) from there, they sent us to meet with a cleft team who's associated to our hospital and is, we're so grateful, nationally ranked hospital. And they answered a hundred thousand questions for us. Our initial reaction was total shock, turned into total fear, turned into why us. And those emotions just kind of cycled and evolved over the last 20 weeks of our pregnancy. And beyond. But I would say probably my, my initial, our initial thought, our initial emotion was total and complete shock. Do they have any idea what caused it? Or is it just like one of those totally random things? Cleft is primarily considered to be an unknown cause. They consider it to be random, quote unquote. There are some genetic syndromes that are associated with a cleft lip and palate. And so Patrick did undergo genetic testing when he was born to rule out any associated genetic syndromes. They also, in his ultrasounds, looked for other things that would be associated with any of those genetic conditions. None of them were identified and his genetic screening came back that there was no genetic connection. Well, that's good. There is... Also, the more you have it in your family history, the more likely it is to repeat itself, just like cancer or anything like that. Once it's in your family history, your family has a a larger chance of carrying that on. There are some medications and drug use or alcohol use 
that they say is possible that it's associated to. Um, I was never on any of the medications or drugs mm-hmm. and drink, you know, none of those things apply to us. In most cases, do not. Most cases fall just like ours are, where it's just completely random. There is some early medical research that is suggesting the way a woman's body absorbs and distributes folic acid or folate can cause Hmm. cleft and or a whole litany of birth defects. And so in my pregnancies after Patrick, they had me on and have me currently on high doses of folic acid about four times what they recommend the average woman take during a pregnancy. It's an early thing that they're looking at. And so it doesn't hurt to take it. I take it. <laughs> Lots That's of it. Really interesting. I had no idea. One of those but, better safe than sorry's. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a vitamin, right? When I first started taking it at that dose, it made me really nauseous. And they had me taking it before we started trying to conceive Jack. And it did, it made me horribly nauseous and I had to get used to it. I started taking it at night so that it would absorb better or Hmm. primarily in evening hours, but my body's gotten so used to it now. It doesn't affect me anymore, but statistically speaking, cleft is one in 700 births. So that is everybody's odds. If you are having a baby, your chances are one in 700. Wow. That's higher than I thought it was. Yeah. It is considered one of the most common birth defects. It is the most common facial birth defect. Wow. Yeah. Which again, like I had no, we were like, my husband's like, what is that? And then you turn around and it's so much more common than you even realize. Wow. So how many surgeries did, had, did Patrick have to have and what was recovery like? Was it harder because he was so young? His first surgery he's had. Okay. He's been under anesthesia four times. Wow. Wow. All be, well, I guess since November was his fourth, his first surgery, he was about four months old and that was to repair his lip and his nose. That's typical somewhere, anywhere from three to six months is considered like a normal range for that first surgery. If you have a cleft lip, Mm -hmm. um, some surgeons break it into two surgeries. And so the first one is a little bit earlier. And then the second one's a little bit later. Our surgeon just does one surgery for lip repair. And he tries to put it somewhere in the middle. He was put back under anesthesia about four days later to remove sutures And at that procedure, they also placed a set of ear tubes. It's incredibly common for children with a cleft palate to have poor drainage in their ears for fluid because the whole cavity of the inside of their mouth kind of like goes down into like a a dipped V. Mm -hmm. So um, it can pool and cause increased ear infections and hearing loss. So Patrick was born almost completely deaf from fluid buildup in his ears. Wow. Um, but once they placed the tubes, his, he was hearing great. But until oh. then, his hearing tests had come back. Essentially, he couldn't hear anything. But the tubes fixed that and his hearing is great. So that was his first two anesthesia experiences and they were right back to back. And then 
uh, at 11 months old, he had his second major surgery, third anesthesia exposure, which was to repair his cleft palate. And that is typically done as early as nine months old, although that's in, that's early and as late as like 18 months old. So there's a big range. Our surgeon really focuses in around that one year age. So he's like 11 to 13 months. He's a much closer window, but a year is pretty average. And so he was 11 months old when he had that surgery. And then his last was just a new set of ear tubes that he needed to have because they grew out of them. Oh, wow. Learning some things, but I guess it makes sense. I mean, they grow. He's had three sets of ear tubes now, and he, that's probably the most he'll have in that kind of time period. The ones he has now will probably last him about five years. So it'll be a much longer shelf life for them now than that initial period, but you grow so much faster when you're right. that yeah. um, quicker. Yeah. What do they always say? They say that like first year of life, like the amount of growing you do is insane. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. So because he had that cleft lip and palate was, was breastfeeding, not a thing. Was it a struggle? Did you, could you not do it at all? Physical nursing is almost impossible where there is a cleft palate, where there is a cleft lip. There is a lot of comp, Sorry, let me back up. <laughs> there You're are fine. so many versions of a cleft. So you can have just a cleft lip. You can have just a cleft palate, or you can have a cleft lip and palate. There are also different variations of a cleft lip and a cleft palate. You can have bilateral, unilateral, complete or incomplete. There's just, there's so the rainbow of options for how a cleft actually forms and presents is really different. When a baby is born with a cleft palate, it's almost impossible to create any suction. So even just a traditional bottle is off the table. It's not an option for them. You can't go grab your regular standard bottle, the target shelf and give it to your baby because it requires them to suck and pull. Same thing with like a pacifier. He couldn't hold a pacifier in his mouth. You'd have to physically hold it for him. So he could go through the pattern, the you know, the motion of it, but it wasn't successful in any way. Babies who have just a cleft lip can create suction if they have the the palate intact, but it can become very difficult because air will escape the lip. It's like having a a hole in your straw. If the air is going out, if there's somewhere for it to to escape, you're not creating that suction. So you had to have a special bottle. So we had special bottles I attempted to pump to still provide breast milk, but it was not something I was successful with. So he was on formula. Ended up, would have been probably our course anyway, because he was, he really struggled to gain weight. It was just, he worked way too hard to have to eat even with a specialty feeding bottle. And he suffered from really bad reflux, which is, common in lots of babies and really common in a cleft baby. He worked super hard to get it all in, burning more calories than he should have. And then he spit up a bunch. So he just, the poor kid could not catch up. So they considered him failure to thrive in terms of like his weight gain until he was about 13 months old. And so he was on high calorie formula with 
cereal or oatmeal added in to thicken the bottle, which ultimately like, again, even if I were successful in pumping, we would have had to be adding calories to his bottle either way. Cause it just was not Wasn't sufficient enough. Yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. Well, and then when you have surgery, so he's on a specialty bottle to eat, but then when surgery comes, they can't have anything past their lips for anywhere from two to six weeks post-op. They have specialty, a different specialty bottle that you give them again, that essentially is like a little straw that goes into the pocket of their mouth to feed them. Patrick hated it. He absolutely refused it. He wouldn't eat the first 24 hours after surgery, which they considered normal. They still discharged us from the hospital. And then he went another like 20 hours without eating. So before I readmitted him to the hospital, I started syringe feeding him, which wasn't recommended by our feeding team, but I had to get my kid to eat. He had to Uh, eat. So he was syringe fed for four weeks post-op was the only way I could get him to eat is a five milliliter Tylenol syringe. I would prepare his formula with the cereal and get it all mixed up in a bottle. And I would pull five milliliters at a time to feed. Oh my goodness. Wow. But it got him to eat. So it's like feeding a little baby bird, but a cute little boy (laughs) instead. It was, you watch like zoo videos where they are like nursling little ducks or something. And that was, that was what we did. Hey, you got to do what works though. Like you said, I mean, I can't imagine liking a straw either. The poor kid. And it's awkward. It was hard to manage our feeding specialist who we worked with used to call it a gerbil feeder. So the bottle of it is soft and flexible so you can squeeze it. And then it's got a long straw and you put it into the corner pocket of their mouth. But as soon as you tip it upside down, it kind of starts to leak. So you can get a little bit too much and then it starts to slow down and then they're not getting it. It was not very easy to work with and it wasn't comfortable. He wanted something else. Okay. So we need somebody out there, one of our listeners to invent a bottle that is more efficient for cleft babies. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny, the moms in a Facebook group I'm in that is like all cleft mom support. We've all come up with our own little little inventions and little hacks and Jimmy rigging our own little bottles and things that work because every kid just responds in this little gerbil feeder they have invented, you can, you get it at medical supply stores is great, but just some kids do really well with it. And some kids are like, no, I'm not having this. That's also why there's 10 different kinds of regular bottles too, because they all Every like different things. Just, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you just roll with it. I think the hardest thing is that there's just so much change for these babies. So getting them to figure out what bottle they like in the beginning, just like any other baby, but they're really limited. And then you really, I mean, at four months old, you're just starting to get into the hang of anything. And then it's changed, but their whole mouth has changed. You know, they're in pain, they're uncomfortable. They wear a medical device in their arms called no-nos. They're Velcro little arm restraints that keep their elbow stiff so that they can't bend their hands and pull at stitches or sutures or anything like that. Oh my gosh. So their arms are stiff. They don't sleep well, obviously, from that. 
Anesthesia in babies can cause night terrors. Oh no. Babies get night terrors. And then you're changing up their feeding, which is also a source of comfort for babies. And they're like this. And then a four month old baby, Patrick started teething. It was like, you just couldn't throw one more thing at the poor kid. I was going to say, how many more things can you throw on the fire? <laughs> and it's just, it's the time frame of what, you know, what's happening. Four months old, they're going through a sleep regression. They're starting to have like some separation anxieties. They've just figured out feeding and now you've taken it away from them. It's oh really, it's a, it's a hard month. We had those, we had those restrictions for that first surgery for four weeks. And then you get a little bit of a break, right? Cause now the clearance of that surgery, he was about five and a half months old. And then in order for our surgeon to clear him for surgery, he had to be off of a bottle completely for his second surgery. So that was scheduled for 11 months old. We needed to essentially prove, and every surgeon's a little different about this, but we essentially had to prove that he was off of a bottle before his second surgery. So at 10 months old, I needed to show that he was successfully exclusively drinking from an open flow cup. Wow. So we started that go. (laughs) There was a lot of thrown milk at my house. (laughs) So we started that around nine months old. So he had like a four month break. And in that four month break, he had to relearn how to drink from a bottle. We accept that because he had not for, you know, weeks Mm -hmm. and then relearn this other new thing. But our surgeon is really strict about that. And a lot of surgeons across the country are not that strict about it. Our second surgery was far easier recovery. And he actually gained weight successfully over the course of his recovery. And I think that had a lot to do with it. So it was energy well spent for us. So there is a reason that the surgeon is so strict about it. Yeah. And it's not, it's not fun. And so I get why some surgeons are like, Hey, listen, I can't demand that every parent does this. And some who don't just don't, but ours was pretty tough about it. And so we really listened to him. It definitely paid off for us. That's a lot. That's a lot for parents to handle. That's a lot for a kid to handle. That's wow. See more involved than I thought. Me too. It's an incredibly intense year. And that's what they sort of warned us is that they, I remember our surgeon who I just love and admire so much. When I was pregnant, he said to my husband and I, you just have to get through the first year. You're, you've got a finish line and that's it. It's a year. And I remember saying to my mom, like, but I don't, <laughs> I don't want to rush through this first year. I don't want to like think I'm going through a race you know, I didn't want to feel like I was rushing his first year. I wanted to enjoy my baby, but there is definitely a point where you are just going to the finish line. And if you've ever run a race, you're like, I'm really close. I'm just, I'm really, really close. This is it. I just have to make it that little bit further. I just have to do this one more thing. I just have to get through this like one last hurdle. Yeah. So what advice would you give to first time moms and then cleft moms. Let's have a little bit for each one. First time cleft mom, I would say find people. It is a really isolating experience because all of your milestones are really different and you cannot compare 
your journey in motherhood or your child's journey in that first year to your friends or your family or your nieces or your nephews. And so having people who have walked it before is really important. And it's why I talk about it as much as I do, because I want to be that person for somebody else. There were so many people for me that having the opportunity to be that person for somebody else is huge. Like when your baby is going back for surgery or you can't get them to eat, you need to have somebody who says like, it sucks and it's super unfair. Here are the three things I tried. Try those two. This is what I packed in the hospital. Having people who, who are in that path with you is really life-changing. I feel like it also seems kind of helpful that you found out while pregnant because you can prepare yourself. Like you said, like, oh, this is what I brought to the hospital, that kind of uh, deal. And you can go and find those support groups before the baby is is even here. I have a love hate with finding out when I was pregnant. I can only imagine. Struggled really badly with prenatal anxiety with the cleft. I just, I would have full days where I would just have complete meltdown that I was so afraid and it would just consume me. Luckily that I have a great support system and I started seeing a therapist. I've dealt with anxiety before and felt like I really needed to address that. I was very grateful I had that opportunity to do that. And we did have an opportunity to yes, meet with a team and everything like that. I have spoken to moms who find out when the baby's born and they're like, I had this great pregnancy. Everything was awesome. And then like, bam, hits you in the head. And that shocking is at the same time that you're delivering. And that's so emotional too. So I don't know because I've only done it one way. I only know my experience, but I think both experiences have struggles and heartache. Like when he was born, he was perfect. It didn't matter because he was so he was my baby. It was perfect. And we would just, we were going to figure it out. And I don't know if I would have felt differently had I not known. It has. The one thing I will say is that, or, and I should say cleft lips are almost always now caught on a sonogram. I have heard of cases where there a cleft lip is not found in the sonogram, but I think 99% of the time, a cleft lip is almost always identified now by sonogram. A cleft palate, though, is almost never identified on a sonogram. We were not, we we probably had 20 sonograms with Patrick. I'm not kidding. We had so many sonograms with him and they were never able to get a good view of the palate because it's so hard with shadows and the way they move to see the internal structure of the mouth. And so most cases of cleft that are identified at birth are isolated cleft palate where there's no lip indication at all just the the palate which is its own thing yeah yeah I'm learning so much today it's amazing yeah (laughs) (laughs) so what advice would you give just like a regular new time mom no no cleft palate the best advice I would give a new mom is you need a lot less clothes than you think like a lot Mm-hmm. like <laughs> put it all back do not register for any you need white onesies that's really it 
You do not need all the clothes that you think you need for a baby. That is my number one advice. But after that, more seriously, I would say find time for you from day one. It is so hard, but finding time to stay connected to the person you were before that little tiny cutest gremlin came into your life. (laughs) They're just, they can be completely consuming and they are incredibly selfish. And that is natural and animalistic and how we survive. But if, if you don't build in the structure from the beginning for yourself about who you are as a person outside of motherhood and what you need in a day to fill that cup, it can really take you over. And I definitely agree with the the close comment because you don't need as many as you think you do. Like none. Yeah. The, the white, the onesies, just the onesies and the layettes. That's all you need. That's it. A couple of pajamas, any, whatever the pajamas you like, as long as they don't have snaps or buttons. The- yeah. The layettes are the best. Cause you can literally just like roll them up and change the diaper and roll them down. And a lot of times the baby doesn't even wake up. They don't even wake up. I know that is great. I remember talking to my husband's cousin who just had their first baby this past winter and she was registering for stuff. And I was looking through her registry and I called her and I was like, you gotta take the buttons off. It's the <laughs> cutest pattern I ever did see, but no mother or father or human on the planet at two o'clock in the morning, sleep deprived, needs the emotional headache of mismatching the buttons. <laughs> with a crying baby who was like you just you don't there's no pattern in the world that is cute enough to justify that you don't see it in the middle of the night they spit up on it they grow out of it in two minutes throw the buttons in the garbage return them all no buttons <laughs> no buttons no the buttons now i know are at the bottom of a onesie and even those don't always get snapped in the right direction yeah. <laughs> i like it they really, the truth is, and I say clothes because it's, it is true. People love, just love to buy baby clothes. They it do. True. They, really, they do. They just don't need really anything. Getting they, onto my third baby. I mean, they really, they need someplace safe to sleep and they need food and diapers. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, like babies, they just don't need that much. Everything else is for our convenience. It is. But even like the bouncers or the rockers or the swings or every, I mean, I have two boys who could not have been bothered with swings, but I've got nieces and nephews who would have lived in them. Oh yeah. My son loved his swing. He would sleep for three hours in that thing. That thing was a lifesaver for me. <laughs> and I wish I could have gotten like my babies to sleep in a swing, but for me, they, they did well baby wearing. So I did a lot of baby wearing, um, for the first like six months. That was how I, I could get stuff done. Patrick <laughs> was nonverbal until about six months ago. And now he says everything under the sun, apparently, until right now. Uh, <laughs> of course. His ABCs to me today. He counts. Awesome. And he's good at colors. Of course. You know, whenever you want them to do things, they never do things. That's how never. it works. Of course. <laughs> So what will you tell Patrick about his cleft as he gets older and he's able to understand more? We talk about his cleft a lot. 
and I have a lot of pictures from his infancy before his surgery around the house. And even now he'll bring over a framed picture and we'll say, that's, that's Patrick, that's baby Patrick. And that's your wide smile. That's your first smile. So those are the early things we're saying to him. And my hope is that we just have such an open dialogue about it, that it's never a big conversation. He also still has an intense medical team that we see pretty regularly. You know, my hope is that there's never a point where I am explaining it to him as much as it is an existing dialogue that we have that just evolves into more specifics. He will still have at least three more major surgeries ahead of him. Wow. You know, the, the anxiety that I have as a mom is how I explain those surgeries and how, you know, as an infant, one of my anxieties was he just trusts us and then he wakes up and he's in pain. Right. And we've like mm-hmm. let him be in pain and he didn't know, like, they're just so trusting. Yeah. And now my fear is that he, as he's older, he'll have his own anxiety about surgery and that will hurt. And that we'll have to talk about that and prepare him for that. And, you know, that, that there may be a point in time where he, he will feel things like, I don't want to do this. Unfortunately, medically, like it just won't necessarily be an option. What are the three surgeries that he has left? Is, is it like for his ears and stuff, or is it more involved in that? Part of a complete cleft palate, a complete cleft lip and palate, the combination is often a cleft of his alveolar ridge, which is his gums. So he has his top gum is actually in two pieces, if you want to think about that. And so he will need a bone graft surgery where they will pull the mouth apart a little bit and insert a bone in its place so that he has the space for his teeth to grow properly. And of course, to also have one gum line. His, he is currently missing teeth. That is considered pretty typical. We don't yet have x-rays of his adult teeth. He's just too little and it yeah. wouldn't actually relate to anything. And so missing teeth as a child is not an exact to missing teeth as, a, as an adult but it's pretty common to either have missing teeth or multiples of teeth. And so there's an expected dental surgery beyond the bone graft that would be implants, like a, like a tooth implant or dental surgery of that type. Yeah. You don't want that gap in between there. That's just a place for food and stuff to hide. And that will just lead to more issues. Yeah. That surgery will be older. The bone graft will be around eight or nine years old, around five or six. They want to do a scar removal surgery on his lip. He's got pretty significant scar tissue. I have some mom emotional up and down about that, but it is a, it is a pretty typical benchmark surgery to remove that scar tissue on his lip. So that would be his next surgery. And then the bone graft potential dental surgeries as an adult, typically around 18, when like your face structure has stopped growing is when they would do a final permanent nose revision, which they, you know, they did when they repaired his cleft lip, they sewed all of that tissue together in his nostril, but 
he does have a pretty significant words are escaping me uh slant in his nostril the the term for it it's it's not uncommon but like a deviated septum septum okay yeah that they would repair and actually give him like a full structure to his nose but they don't do that until the face stops growing that makes Um, sense and then there are any number of additional surgeries that may come up not uncommon is a jaw surgery where because you have manipulated the palate and the whole upper jaw so much, it can stunt in growth long-term, which would create like a significant underbite. And so when that is present, they do a surgery where they break your jaw and put a device on it to like move it forward. Um, which is very intense. And we hope that we do all of the things early on that limit his chances of having to have that surgery, but it's not uncommon, unfortunately, for children with a cleft lip and palate to require that surgery as well. Wow. That's intense. So I know, I, I don't know if this is like a weird question, but so is like, does insurance cover all of this or is it like some of this considered cosmetic and not covered? I'm just, I don't know why I'm curious about insurance, but here I am. (laughs) No, honey, I think it's a really good question. It's definitely a question that I had. So for us personally, to date, everything has been covered. He did have a device that was required in his mouth. It was called an obturator. It's essentially like a hard, it was like a denture that we kept in his mouth until his first surgery. It helped to bring his mouth closer together. That was the only element of his care to date that has not been covered. And even that technically should have been covered. There was like some insurance filing issues and we fought it as long as we could until we just had to pay our sweet, well-cared, caring dentist. But that is also my experience in having all of these surgeries covered is not exclusive. Some people do fight this issue and it really depends on your insurance company and how claims are filed. I met a really nice mom on Instagram. Her daughter and Patrick are only a couple months apart, very similar clefts. And her insurance company tried to claim that it was cosmetic. Um, There's nothing cosmetic about a cleft. And so it's pretty criminal, but it's not, it's it's not, not unheard of. Yeah. Cause when I was thinking about it, I was like, I bet you like insurance companies. Cause in my mind, all they want is money. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, I bet you they try to like, on some cases, at least try to say, no, it's cosmetic. And what should be happening. And, um, I, I'm not going to speak exactly for this particular case. I believe she ended up having it covered, but what should be happening is that the medical team is documenting it properly mm-hmm. to show medical cause. And then there yeah. is no reason. I mean, it's one thing to say like, Hey, I need a nose job for. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and saying, you know, I was born with a cleft and it causes, you know, it's caused these long-term issues that need to be resolved. Right. Especially because they can't eat. Yes. It's your lip and your face, but when it's affecting their eating and everything, 
Yeah, it affects your long-term growth. It affects your speech, your speech yeah. development. A cleft palate is responsible for suction, which we need to drink from straws or create suction of any kind, blow a bubble, blow out your birthday candles, all of that you need your palate for, but Mm -hmm. you also need it to speak. Every sound English language requires closure to the back of your throat, except the letters M, N, and N, G. So every other sound except M, N, and N, G require that you close the back of your mouth. So if you have a cleft palate, you can't properly make these sounds. There are so many medical factors that affect these kids as they grow up. You know, the early eating is one element for sure. Immediately, it's the only element, but I mean, you need it for social living. You need it for proper hygiene so that your, your, your mouth is closed and protected from germs. (laughs) Uh, you needed to speak and you needed to eat normally and function. And Is that why his speech was delayed because of his palate? It is not uncommon for a child with a cleft palate to have a speech delay. Although it is, it, Patrick's um, specific situation was not entirely cleft related. There were some, lots of kids with a cleft palate also talk right on time. So it's not automatic that a child with a cleft palate would speak late, but it's also not unheard of. Where exactly Patrick falls into that? Who knows? knows? He just wanted to wait and say all the important things at once. (laughs) I think he just wanted to give me a heart attack. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He does also suffer from a little bit of the sensory processing disorder and he's got some anxiety. I don't think... I've suffered from anxiety my whole life. I don't think that's really special on my side of the family, but also unheard of based on everything he's been through. And he is a little bit hyposensitive. So he just doesn't feel things at the intensity that we might feel things. I have my own theories about four anesthesia experiences in the first year of your life, potentially affecting your nervous system, but there's no medical information for that. So yeah, it probably doesn't happen very often. So they probably don't have enough uh, data to, I believe, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, four anesthesias the first year of your life has got to have some it's sort a of lot. effect. Yeah. Yeah. Anesthesia shuts down your entire nervous system. I mean, he was under for four to six hours for each surgery. That's a lot on a yeah. developing child. He receives, he goes to a full-time therapeutic preschool and he receives occupational therapy for sensory processing and uh, speech therapy. So he's getting all the things he needs. Yep. And it's working some crazy wonders. Really That's is. awesome. I wish I had more of that when I was, because I've had anxiety too, since I was like six years old. So, I mean, I wish I had those types of resources when I was younger, because maybe even you or I might even be better off, but you know, it is what it is. I totally agree. I, I see myself in some of his anxiety behaviors and I'm like, how awesome that like I can come up with coping mechanisms for him at three that I didn't learn until I was, you know, well into my twenties. Yeah. Have you uh, shared any of those coping mechanisms with your Instagram? You know, his therapy process, the, the process we go through for therapy I have limited in my sharing on Instagram for a couple of reasons. 
one, I want to respect his, I'm constantly walking this line of respecting his privacy. He can't consent to what I share yet. And a lot of what he's getting that particular therapy for is moments that like you where I can say, I'm having a panic attack. I'm having anxiety. And in a toddler, it looks like a total meltdown, right? Those are really vulnerable moments that I just don't feel are mine to share. Yeah. Right. One thing if yeah. I'm like, I'm having a horrible day and I'm having a meltdown as a mom and I want to share that. I think it's different to share someone else's without their permission. So yeah, I've been cautious about that. The other element is that I think how you approach each child and what they need is so unique. And so what helps Patrick is not necessarily what's going to help Thomas or any other child out there. And so I have a hard time. I'm also hearing every, you know, I'm learning from them and doing it as we learn. So it's, you know, I always say, if you you know, in talking to moms who are struggling with some of these issues. And I've shared that that we are going through the process, but my recommendation is always be evaluated, speak to somebody, you know, we get a lot of our resources through our town. Now it's through the school district. And before it was through our County early intervention program in every area, state and County manages that differently but get evaluated, speak to somebody, get a professional involved. Cause I'm not the professional. I'm just a mom, like sort of yeah. trying to figure my way through. I like it. Good answer. <laughs> so you talked about your anxieties with Patrick. Did you have any anxieties with the other two pregnancies or just being a mom? Like after Patrick, like, were you anxious getting pregnant the second time? I have struggled with anxiety since I was probably like Rihanna said, a kid. And so for me, anxiety is just a part of my every day. When I was, when we were first considering getting pregnant with Patrick, I was on an anti-anxiety medication that was not recommended for pregnancy. So about a year before we started trying I got off of the medication and it was offered to me to go on any other number of medications that are approved and safe for pregnancy. But it had been like 10 plus years since I'd been on no meds. So I really wanted to see what my body would do. And I did really well right up until we got the cleft diagnosis. Oh, um, no. <laughs> and then I was really grateful for therapy and I felt like talking to somebody was better medicine for me than medicine. After Patrick was born, I used CBD oil um, and that helped with my anxiety a lot for surgeries and just day-to-day things. I had a very positive experience with that. It is not necessarily recommended also for pregnancy. So when we were going to get pregnant with Jack, I stopped taking that as well. I had a fantastic pregnancy with Jack and I actually had no anxiety. I was also delivered in 2020, which is completely insane. So it tells you the the total hormonal shift I had in my pregnancy with Jack. We were in a global pandemic. Our small business was shut down and I was like, 
I don't feel anxious at all. It was great. Like, this is fine. <laughs> I love it. Great. It's really wild what hormones will do to you. And I would say in this pregnancy, I've had ups and downs with my anxiety, but I have come up with some just better coping mechanisms for myself. I love to write. I need to find ways for myself to be active and creative. I love to read and being a content creator really pours into those things for me. So that's sort of my passion project, my little part-time side gig that also just like feeds the things that I need. So I know if I'm not being creative, writing a little bit, I talk a lot on, on my page about, you know, how I spend time every morning doing my hair, putting on makeup, getting dressed. Those are sort of like ritualistic things for me that just make my cup full to start my day. And I have just learned that those things really help me. And I don't think that like my recipe for things are going to be what's going to work for somebody else. But I think finding those recipe of things in motherhood and just in life for sure have helped me. Yes and no. I mean, yes, I, I continue to feel like anxious all the time. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think that that's never going to go away for me. But I have learned some really great coping mechanisms outside of a traditional medication, which I also should just say. I think if you need it, you should take it. And there's no thing as being strong or toughing it out. Um, Well, I think that's like the perfect note to end on, you know? I do too. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, this is having me. So this is how to do when shit gets real, everyone. Make sure to rate and review us. Give us a follow on all of our uh, social media platforms. And we'll see you next Friday.